Okay, it is, it is so rich. I kept telling myself before I got up, don't make any introductory remarks. Get on with the sermon. Don't. I'm sorry. It's so wonderful to be here. And can I just say, you're so beautiful. Uh, it's beautiful to be here, um, listening to the worship, the prayer, um, the word of God uh, being read. I, I, I don't have anything else to say, except Matt is paying me so much money. I, I feel like I probably need to, you know. <laughs> Uh, we are going to be talking about obedience, and uh, let me go ahead and give you our text there. So if you want to turn there, um, it is 1 John chapter 2, 1 through 6. I'm also going to reach over and catch one verse from chapter 5 in 1 John. That's verse chapter 5, verse 3. So obedience, you know, the thing that went into this sermon... The thing that inspired the, the work, the prayer, the Bible study that went behind this sermon was an experience I had a couple of years ago in which a friend of mine, a close friend of mine from college days, was living a life that was clearly contradictory to the commands of God. And I had to go and confront this brother, a brother in Christ, dear brother, I love him. Um, and the thing that was so surprising to me and painful to me was that even though he was clearly flying in the face continually, and making decisions that, that were just clearly against the will of God, as expressly, clearly revealed in the Bible. He claimed to be living in fellowship with God, growing in grace. He was attending church. He was going to Bible studies. And he claimed that God affirmed the lifestyle choices that he made. At the time, I was really studying First John, and I came across the passage we're going to read, and I had to, to share this passage with him. It was very hard. Uh, so before we read that, let me give you an outline about obedience. Are just four questions I want to answer regarding obedience. Number one, what is obedience? Secondly, why? Why should we obey God? Third, what happens when we obey God? In other words, what are the results or the benefits or the fruit of obedience? And finally, how can we obey God? So if you would just stand up, I'm going to read this First John passage. Uh, would you rise? And this is to honor God, God's word. This is literally the word of God, the same God that we talked about being radiant in the heavens, and he's spoken to us. And it's also a way to just wake us up and, and, and remind us of that. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he says is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. And I'm going to add First uh, John 5, 3. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. Thank you. You can be seated. So, you know, what is obedience? Doesn't it seem strange to, to have to define something so basic? I mean, we're not talking about a fancy theological term, and I'm sure Matt is always giving you fancy theological terms. I don't have any of those, I'm sorry, but I've got obedience. Um, and 
I think two reasons we needed to find it. One is I'm kind of a nerd, a doctor nerd, and so we always start every medical talk by defining exactly what we're talking about. And secondly, as my little introductory story mentioned, we live in an age in which even in the church, the authority of the Bible is being eroded and truth is seen increasingly in a relativistic way. So I think we do need to define obedience. So let me give one, I'm going to give actually three definitions and then a description. The first definition is obedience, very simple, following the commands of the Bible, not necessarily the church, the coffee shop, the Christian book, the school, the whatever, following the commands found in the Bible. In other words, doing what God says to do and not doing what God says not to do. Now, maybe that should be enough as a definition, but the problem with that definition is that to somebody who's from a more legalistic background and that focuses on externals or religious activity, it doesn't really speak to a, a, another level of obedience, which is even more important. So let me offer for such a person uh, a different definition. Uh, obedience in the second definition is this, lovingly conforming our lives to the ways of God in thought, word, deed, and attitude. So that emphasizes the heart. You remember what Samuel said to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. And Saul, I was obeying. I was was doing all this religious activity, and we were were doing a sacrifice. No, no, you don't get it, Saul. There's a different kind of obedience. God wants obedience from the heart, something else. And we can look certainly at our own lives. We can look at the church history, the lives of people like Martin Luther and, and John Wesley, who before they were saved were generating a lot more religious activity than I think all of us combined are ever going to be able to amount to. They didn't even know God. They weren't truly obeying from the heart. They weren't lovingly conforming their lives to the ways of God. John, in this passage that we read a minute ago, gives an even simpler definition. It's incredibly simple. In in this last verse, verse 6, he says, walking as Jesus did. Obedience is imitating Jesus. That's an important word, imitating. I know we talked about uh, being adopted several times in the prayers and as, uh, during the worship, and that's going to really come into play later in the sermon, a very, very important point of being God's children and imitating God. Nothing could be more natural than for children to imitate their, their parents. And finally, I want to give maybe not exactly a definition, but a description that's going to lead, lead us into a deeper understanding of obedience as well. Obedience is the primary way by which we express our love to God. And the primary manifestation of that obedience is loving one another. Okay, so we know what obedience is now. Let's move on to some stickier uh, questions. The next question is, why should we obey God? I mean, what's the point, somebody might ask? Um, it's obvious that the first, uh, the first reason is it's important to God. John starts out this passage by saying, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. In other words, it does matter to God whether we sin. The motivation for John writing this this particular passage was don't sin. Don't sin. It matters to God. Jesus spoke about obedience frequently in his ministry. In fact, it was so important to Jesus that his parting words pertain to obedience. You know, parting words, I mean, if you've been with somebody for a while and you're getting ready to leave them, that last, you want to get in that last word, you want it to be significant. I got a kid about to go to college. I need to start working on that, those parting words. I mean, that's, that's going to be big. He's been with me for 18 years and this is it. And I want it to be more profound than, you know, wash behind your ears or whatever, drive between your toes. 
Jesus' parting words. Well, wait a minute, you say, no, the parting words were uh, the, the Great Commission, right? Uh, and so that was all about missions, right? Well, a couple of years ago, I took a missions class, and the teacher was talking about how do we know when a, when a culture, when a people group has been reached for Christ? And I was thinking, oh, yeah, I know, so many churches, so many Bible studies, so many believers, maybe some buildings, some church buildings. Maybe it's influencing the culture or shaping the culture at large. All he kept talking about was obedience, obedience. And I don't understand. What is he talking about obedience for? That doesn't make any sense with regard to missions. I went back and read the Great Commission. What are the parting words of the Great Commission? Go, therefore, into all nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's the last command. And lo, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Obedience mattered so much to Jesus that he used it as the metric of when we've actually become disciples, of when a group of people, when the church has actually reached a group of people. Clearly very important to Christ. Well, one thing we should emphasize very, very quickly is as we talk about the importance of obedience, we're building up toward legalism, right? Obedience is important to God not because we gain any kind of favor with God, not because we impress God, not because we manipulate God, not because we make God love us more, not because we achieve righteousness, certainly not because we achieve salvation through obedience. And I know that's a message of grace that is preached from this stage every week, and we got to keep preaching it every, every week, don't we? We have to preach it every week. We have to preach it every day to ourselves. We do not impress God with our righteous deeds. We do not win salvation. After all, John comes in right after that first thing in which he says, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but, hey, hey, calm down, calm down. If anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And you know what? He's not a hack defense attorney whose clients all go to jail. He's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And isn't that the guy you want defending you when you're in the court of the, the Most High? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Salvation our standing with God, our righteousness with God is strictly by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of God. So does that spur you on to obedience? Wow, I'm really motivated. Thanks a lot. You're telling me that I can't impress God with my good deeds. I can't make him love me anymore. So you still haven't really answered the question of why should I obey? Sure, it's important to God. Let me use an analogy. I'm a physician. Bill mentioned that. When I was uh, when my kids were younger, I, I said they were about, one of them was about to go to college, but when they were little kids, what do you think they got as a present? A doctor kit, okay, of course. So I'm, probably most of your kids have a little doctor kit as well. Well, my son played with his little doctor kit, and he'd come and give me fake shots and check my blood pressure and make me throw up in the emesis basin. and all. That was his favorite part, um, and all this, this stuff. And so, you know, when I saw that, he was imitating me, right? He was, the, the, it's, like I said, it's the most natural thing in the world. Just watch children. They do exactly what their parents do. He was imitating me. He'd seen what I did, saw my, my stethoscope that I had in my pocket, and he showed him how to put it in his ears. And So when I saw that, I didn't immediately say, wow, this kid's got talent. I'm going to talk to the dean of the med school. I think he should go straight into med school, maybe even just get past the boards right now. We can't pass on this kid. We need him at Vanderbilt in the med school. I, I wasn't impressed 
with his skills. So you think the same way, all of our righteousness, all of our good deeds, the things that we consider to be obedience, the things that impress us about each other and impress ourselves about ourselves, it's like child's play to God. This is the radiant God of all creation residing in unapproachable light. And we buy a copy of The Contributor, and we feel pretty good about ourselves, right? (laughs) Do you think God is impressed? Do you think you've won favor, you've manipulated him? But there's a tendency to take that too far and say another thing. It's all a joke to God, right? It's pathetic. We're pitiful. He laughs at us. He laughs at our pitiful deeds. Well, let me tell you, when my kid played with that doctor kit, I didn't want to say, don't you see it's just a toy? That's pathetic. You can't cure anybody with that. That's not a real syringe. How did I feel as a parent watching my child? I delighted in my child doing that. I was filled with love and filled with delight. The answer to the question of why we should obey God, and by the way, it is the answer to every one of the questions that we're going to ask today, is the love of God, the love of God. Remember we started by saying, Obedience is the primary way in which we express love. There's no contempt from God at our good deeds. There's also not impressed. God's not impressed. God delights, though, and God is pleased, and God regards us as his children. And when they're weak, that doesn't fill God with scorn. It fills him with tenderness toward us. Let me read this, because this is the most important thing, other than reading the word of God today. The most important thing I'm going to say is this. We should obey God not to win his love, but because we've already received his love. We should seek to lead righteous lives because we've already been declared righteous through Christ Jesus by God. We should obey God not to become his children, but because if we believe in his one and only son, then we already are his children. So I said earlier, John started out by talking about his motivation for us to obey. That's not really true, is it? What's the first thing John says? My dear children, or maybe your translation says my little children. An expression of affection and also a description of our position in Christ. Obedience is not something that brings us to a place in Christ. It's not something that wins us a position with God. Obedience is something that derives from, that springs from our position in Christ as dearly loved children. I want to read another passage, Um, and I know, unfortunately, I'm not a pastor, so I can have a second passage. I know that pastors aren't supposed to do that. You don't have to turn there if you want to. It's Ephesians 5, the first 10 verses. Listen to it, though, and listen to Paul very much according with John, two completely different personalities, the same Holy Spirit inspiring the text. And listen for what I've been describing. Listen for our position in Christ leading to obedience and and pleasing God. Ephesians 5, 1 through 10 says this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality... And any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man 
who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, but because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. John and Paul make a beeline when they're talking about obedience to the same word, love, and the same idea. Here's my analogy for helping understand this a little bit better, maybe. Imagine that there's a country whose king dies, and his son is very, very young and assumes the kingship. He is now, this little boy is now the king, the sovereign ruler, the monarch of a country. But he's too young to really know how to function as a king, so he has some sort of royal tutor or courtier or whatever put in charge of him. And as this young boy, learning how to be the king, growing, exhibits certain behaviors, such as maybe something, does something that's undignified. The tutor says, sire, you're the king of this country. You need to conduct yourselves with dignity. Everybody's looking at you. Or he does some petty thing, some little unjust or unfair thing. Sire, you're the model of justice for an entire sovereign state. Conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the justice of your title. In other words, you're a king. Start acting like it. John and Paul, the Lord speaking through them, says the same thing. Listen to the words that he uses to describe. You're light in the Lord. You are saints. You're God's holy people. You're dearly loved children. So start acting like it. How should you act? If your name is written on the hands of God, like that song says and like Isaiah the prophet tells us, how should people whose names are written on the hand of God be acting? If God's going to look at his hand and see your name, how should we be behaving? We should act like saints. We should start acting like it. I don't really think we'll ever have the power to act like it, to obey God, until we have the position and we really comprehend and appreciate, not that we're ever going to fully comprehend and appreciate, our position in Christ from which the rest of it derives. So what's going to happen then in that case? This is our third question, by the way. What happens? What are the benefits of salvation? Or not salvation. We know that, that that's, that's not achieved through obedience, okay? Remember that part? Um, what are the benefits of, of obedience? First, God receives glory. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your good deeds shine before men so that they may see them. Let your light shine before men so they may see your good deeds and heap praises on you. No, that's not what he says, right? They may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Our obedience, our good deeds are lights that shine like spotlights on God. They're like telescopes. God's, you know, he's not tiny, what we'd see with a microscope. He's huge. But these are like telescopes that make him maybe a little more visible to those who can't see. God is glorified. And God is pleased. How wonderful. This passage in Ephesians 10 closed that. Ephesians 5 verse 10 said that. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. There are other passages. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 talks about pleasing God. God is pleased. Again, there's the delight of that father watching his child imitate him. and God is pleased. And don't underestimate the power 
of the pleasure of God. Oh, when we see a smile on the face of God, do we need any other reward? Forget about streets of gold. That's all I want to see is that face saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's enough. A third thing is we're protected. Years ago, a friend told me uh, when working in my office, boy, one thing about working in this office is that I can really see how much God loves us and how his commands are there for our benefit. Now, I came in here today ready to talk about the Ten Commandments briefly, and I was going to quickly run through those and mention how in my practice of medicine I see them broken and I see the fruit of that. But I have a more current event to describe for you, and that actually happened this morning. Um, And this is not pleasant for me, but at 4 a.m. this morning, uh, this true story, I was down at the bus station with my college roommate picking up an old friend coming in from out of town and putting him into rehab um, and trying to put his body back together a little bit and his mind and spirit back together again. This is a brother, this man coming from out of town on the bus is a brother um, he texted me at 8.30 this morning saying, I hope and pray, I'm praying for you right now that your sermon would glorify God. Um, but he's spent a life and uh, committed a lot of deeds of disobedience against God. And it shows because he's lost his family, his children, his career, and his health. God loves us so much that he doesn't want our jaw to be broken by a drug dealer. Walking out of the house this morning at 3.30, I just said, Lord, I need some help dealing with this situation. I flipped open the Bible and to the Proverbs, and the first verse I read, and I'm sure Matt doesn't believe in that kind of thing, sorry. Uh, <laughs> the first verse I read was, don't associate with violent and wicked men. I thought, wow, thank you that you love me so much that you're going to protect me from that um, if I obey you. Uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 19, verse 11, by your commands, the servants of God are warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Disobey the laws of God at your peril. Why? Because he loves you and he wants you to be healthy. That's not to say that everything's going to be easy and perfect in our lives. We won't suffer if we obey God because, of course, we know we will. Here's another benefit. Another fruit of obedience. If we obey God, he reveals more of himself to us. Uh, Jesus said in John 14, 21, I think I read this passage last time I preached here. Uh, It means a lot to me. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Do you want to have a vision of Jesus? Obey him. You may not see him until you start obeying him in faith, until you start lovingly conforming your life. Okay, we've talked about the importance. Maybe I convinced you. We know what obedience is. It's not so easy, though, right? How can we possibly obey God? We all fail. And John already said that. If anybody does sin, recognizing the fact that sin is a universal problem, disobedience to God is a universal problem we're going to struggle with. But where can we get the strength to obey God. Well, let me tell you where we don't get the strength, first of all. And these are places where we try to get the strength. One is pride. Boy, it's going to look bad. I better suck it up because I feel good about myself when I do this. Another one is guilt. 
And guess what? Pride and guilt, same thing. They're just different sides of the same coin. Pride is the flesh having a good day. Guilt is the flesh having a bad day. Have a quiet time? Good. Don't have a quiet time? Bad. Oh, need to beat myself up. You know what the answer is. The answer is not in those. What is the answer for the power to obey God? It is the love and the grace of God. Several years ago, a patient came in and uh, told me that he had played professional football. He was a receiver back in the glory days of the Chicago Bears. A little shout out to you guys from Chicago. Um, during uh, the time of Mike Ditka as a coach. Now, I know Ditka's become a little bit of a laughing stock, but in these days, Ditka was pretty much state-of-the-art. Some people consider this the greatest NFL team, the greatest football team there ever was. And, you know, when you looked at Ditka sort of on TV, he was this intense, angry Marine. He had this butch sort of flat top, and he screamed at people. He went around, spit coming out of his mouth and everything. And I said to this guy that had played under him, I said, man, I bet he was a jerk. I bet you guys just dreaded to see him. And he said... Oh, oh, we loved him. I would have jumped off a cliff for him in two seconds. You know, from the outside, sometimes the non-Christian looks and sees God as, how can you serve that butch-headed, uptight God that's always making you do this and not doing that? He's got all these, he's got issues. But if we know the love of God, we say, oh, oh, you don't know. I would do anything for him. He's so wonderful. I love him. He's so worthy. He's so glorious. He's so great. And when I see him smile, when I see the look on his face, I would undergo anything. I would do anything for him. He is so worthy. That's where the power to obey God comes from, the power of pleasing God. I heard Jack Miller, the great preacher, I had the privilege of hearing him preach once, and he was talking about obedience and preaching. And he said, you cannot receive salvation through your good deeds. And somebody said, well, what does it matter? And he said, oh, be careful. Love has power. Before you know it, something's going to happen to you. Something's going to get a hold of you. And the power of the love of Christ is going to start changing you. We can look at an example of that. It's great to look at modern examples, but there are examples in the Bible as well. So you're thinking, okay, we're talking about love, right? So all I got to do is sit around and wait for that warm, fuzzy feeling, and then I'll be able to obey God, right? Because you're love. It's all about love, and so I'm waiting. The problem with that is that's our culture's view of the word love. It's a very false, a very anemic, a very impoverished view of the word love. Song of Songs chapter 8 says, love is as strong as death. It burns like fire. Ooh, that's not so warm and fuzzy. That's hotter than warm and fuzzy, isn't it? Look at the example of somebody like Paul. This is the warm, fuzzy Paul that we all know and love. And he describes some of the warm, fuzzy experiences he has in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm not going to read the passage, but I just want to mention kind of the little, the sweet little, you know, triflings that happened because of his love for Christ. Labors, imprisonments, beatings, 39 lashes, beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked, spent a night on the deep. I think which means going up and down the waves on the water on a raft, you know, a piece of shipwreck wreckage, flotsam. Journeys, dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers from false brethren, labor, hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, 
no food, cold, and exposure. What in the world would motivate somebody to go through that? Well, you think Paul was just an intense guy. He was a Mike Ditka. He was, you know, he just, let's go. I live for this kind of thing. I eat nails for breakfast kind of guy. He told us, he told us earlier in the book what drove him to do this. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, he says, the love of Christ constrains us. The love of Christ has gotten a hold of us and we're driven to do these things. Not because we're intense, not because we're worthy, but because he is so magnificent. All right, I want to move on to some practical, get a little more practical, because if I say the love the love of God, that's hard to grasp that sometimes. So let me give some practical pointers, some applications about how we can obey God. First of all, like most things in life, ask for help. Ask God for help. We forget such a basic thing as prayer. Ask God for help. And you know the other thing? Ask others for help. When we read these commands of the Bible, I love saying this. I'm a Southerner, okay? When you read the commands of the Bible, most of these letters are written in the second person plural. You is not a single person. You is a y'all. What a terrible day when English lost that distinction. But fortunately in the South, we've preserved the glorious tradition of the second person plural. Y'all do this. Y'all do this. The commands of the Bible are meant to be carried out corporately. Of course, individually as well. But they're meant ultimately to be carried out by the church and not just by us as individuals. So ask for help. Let's do this together. Let's seek the love of God together. And that's our third point. Rather than focusing just on obedience as a slavish devotion to externals and religious activities, focus on the love of God. And we may find things starting to happen in our lives. Suddenly, we're going through some sleepless nights. Maybe we're going without food. Maybe we're actually suffering a little bit because of the love of God. Next, make obedience a habit. Now, I've already mentioned sports a couple of times. Let me mention another one. A couple of years ago, a patient comes in the office, and I'm looking at him. He's a really big guy, uh, but he's a little bit out of shape. And I asked him in the social part of the history, uh, what do you do? And he said, well, I, I work retail, but I'm actually going to play for the Titans. I said, Are you, really? You've had a tryout? Well, not yet. But I'm going to play for the Titans. Like, well, okay, are, are you, you working out? Where, where do you work out? What, what kind of stuff? I'm not working out much, but, uh, but I'm going to play for the Titans. Really? But, I mean, where did you play in college? Well, I didn't play college ball, but I am going to play for the Titans. You get the idea, right? Every day, God is sending us wonderful little opportunities, minute by minute, to obey him. You know, and the problem is sometimes, and I mean this word in a negative sense, we can be dreamers. We dream of leading the Billy Graham crusade, and maybe we just need to start talking to our neighbor about Christ. And we dream of being prayer warriors and, you know, fasting and being up all night and restless nights of anguished prayer. And maybe we just need to just write somebody's name down and just pray for them one time. We dream of powerfully preaching the word, and we just need to memorize a verse of the Bible. Start small. You know, Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, whoever can be trusted with very little 
can also be trusted with much. God may not give us those big opportunities for big, impressive works of obedience until we start walking in the little, humble acts of obedience that he's sending us every day, hour by hour. I'm going to close with a story, surprising, about my friend Jason from high school. Jason's father was a prominent enough artist um, that he was actually in my history book, one of my hist- Mississippi history book in our class. That's pretty cool. Your dad's in our history book here, you know, as a prominent artist. And uh, I've actually traveled around with him a little bit, was at an, an unveiling of one of his portraits, uh, Jason's father's portrait that he had painted. And I was like, wow, I'm with the big wigs. People are kind of treating us nice, you know. So my friend Jason, the son of this prominent artist, uh, was also a very talented artist. And he went off and got educated at Harvard and in art. And I thought, wow, the sky's the limit for this guy. And, and even his dad was saying around town, Jason's better than I am. He's, he's going to be better than I am. So my friend Jason was apprenticed to his father after college as an artist. And I heard about this, and I went and I said, I want to go see some of the stuff you're painting. I can't wait. I mean, And I imagined, you know, this flurry of just brilliant, creative, glorious art pouring out of that studio, magnificent, deep oils that he worked in. And he said, I haven't painted any paintings yet. Like, you're three weeks into the apprenticeship and you haven't painted any paintings yet? He said, yeah, yeah, Dad has me mixing paint. Um, That's what I'm doing. I'm still learning how to mix paint. It's kind of a wax on, wax off kind of thing. If you know what I mean, little humble acts of obedience. Jason wasn't complaining. He was thankful for those wonderful little opportunities to mix and perfectly tune his skills, to look at the world in colors that I can't even, I can't fathom, having no artistic ability. And not a father like that, and not the skills of my friend Jason Bolden. But I'll tell you, since then, I've seen some of the paintings that he's produced since then, and they are magnificent. And I believe God can do magnificent things in us if we start by little works of obedience, if we're motivated, and if we act from his love for us, our position in Christ, our righteousness that he has granted us through the blood of Jesus Christ, his son. Let me pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that, as John says later, we love because he first loved us. Lord, we can't even tell you today we love you. We pretty much have to say, I love you too, because you said it to us first. You demonstrated it. This is how God demonstrated his love. He sent his one and only son as a propitiation for our sins. Thank you for making us your children. Thank you for declaring us righteous because of his righteous work. Thank you for adopting us. Thank you for making us clean. And thank you for granting those good works to flow from us to your glory because of your love. Lord, I pray for this church. I pray for a deepening in the love of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help them to manifest your love through loving each other, through loving the world, through acts of obedience, through good deeds, through prayer, 
through sacrifice, through evangelism, through worship, through teaching and deepening in your word. I pray that this church would be an open door. And I saw that beautiful window on the sign out there today, and the door was open. Make them like the church at Philadelphia, Lord. Make them like the church at Philadelphia. Grant an open door in them, through them, and to them in their community, with each other, and bless them, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.